So we're rolling. Cool. We are live. This is You're Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson Leary. And my name is Mark. And by now, you know I have a passion that you should feel in control of your life. And so what I do is I help you get control of your business. And one of the ways that I help you do that is by letting you listen in on these conversations between me and somebody else who has a passion for excellence in the entrepreneurial world, geeking out on a subject you already know a little bit about, or maybe even a lot about. But this time, we're digging in and cracking open those nuggets so you can start to figure out how to break through those ceilings and get to that life you want to live and have uh, have fun doing it. So speaking about geeking out, uh, I'm so excited to talk about a subject that many of you probably are mystified by, but uh, I have the self-described pricing geek, Casey Brown, who has got TED Talks on this and speaks all over the country world, I guess, but certainly over the country uh, on the topic of pricing and how it, how it matters. And I'm so excited to geek out on pricing and why that matters right now. Welcome, Casey. How are you? Uh, very well. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. How did you get to be a, a pricing geek? Where did this start? Well, I think it's every little girl's dream, really. Uh, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I felt the right. same way. As a little girl, <laughs> I, I was enamored with pricing. Yeah. So uh, the, the the true answer is quite by accident. So, you know, uh, when I was a kid and, and there was a career day at my school, no no pricing experts came and visited my classroom. So I didn't know it was a discipline. <laughs> not on a career I didn't, day. I did not. pricing experts, right, nurse. Right. Yeah. right. So I did not know about it. Uh, and I uh, was good at math. And science and so like a lot of people who are good at math and science I started out as an engineer I, I studied that in college and um, became an engineer at General Electric and uh, I love the technical and analytical aspects of engineering and um, I love the uh, the discovery process and the uh, experimentation process and I was in uh, manufacturing and R&D but I uh, am an extrovert I love people I have what some people call a big personality <laughs> so I did not last very long in the engineering department because I did a little too much talking and got kicked out <laughs> so <laughs> I've been kicked out of classes yeah, before I yeah mean, so, good company so I I mean I, I ended up in uh, Six Sigma which is uh, you know a lot of folks have heard of that, but it's data-driven and uh, quality-driven initiative for improving your business, uh, which fit my engineering personality really well, but allowed me to explore other parts of the business. And I did rotations uh, in various parts of GE as one of their early black belts and ended up finding my way into pricing and and really just fell in love with the discipline. It's um, it's an intersection of, of art and science, uh, of, of people and process, of data and psychology. Um, you know, I, I my only exposure to pricing before that had been like an Econ 101 textbook where it's uh, presented very, um, you know, in a very sanitized way, very um, clinically like if you raise prices, you lose volume. If you uh, lower prices, you you'll you'll gain volume in this very uh, mathematical demand curve kind of fashion. And the real world is so much more interesting and so much more nuanced and gray. Uh, in the real world, pricing works a lot more like a game of poker where everybody's trying to bluff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so that began my my twenty five year love affair for pricing. So what's the what's the theme in pricing right now? In 
Yeah. What's the theme? Like, I'm, I have to, this, is co- this is COVID year 2.5. It's a totally new world. I think mm-hmm. every, I, I talk incessantly about this concept of abundance versus scarcity and the crises mm-hmm. of abundance that are different than crises of scarcity. Mm-hmm. And it's a different, it's a head game for people right now to try to figure out how to operate the business when there seems to be, for many businesses, plenty to go around and yet plenty of challenges that make it seemingly hard in the way of economics, of, of profitability. So sure. what's, what's, what's new in the game of pricing right now? <laughs> so the, the theme, to answer your first question, is chaos. And what's new in the game of pricing? Uh, I would say it's not so much new as it is magnified. Uh, and so here's what I mean by that. I think uh, having been a deep student of this one weird little wrinkle of business for a long time, what I've seen is that uh, it is not very many people's f- it I might be the only person I know who thinks pricing is the best part of business. Most people find it to be uh, stressful, uh, fearful, uncomfortable. Uh, they're happy to ignore it and set it once a year. Uh, sales folks mostly and people responsible for having conversations with customers. The point where they get ready to tell somebody what something costs is not their favorite part of the conversation. Oh I hate that. I hate that part. <laughs> I mean, I really, yeah, I you look, well, yeah, and you you know as a as an EOS uh, implementer, I'm sure you're doing the 90 minute meeting or whatever yeah. other things you're doing. Maybe other you know you love to communicate and connect with customers probably and 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 have them experience how great it is to have the service. And then right when you have to say that number that's the part for many people that is the most uncomfortable, the most unpleasant, the part that gives you that icky belly feeling. And um, that's absolutely, I, I, I get to that. I go through the, this, this great presentation working through this and suddenly I'm like, here we are again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's a pricing that I've meticulously come up with on the basis of sure. demand that a price I had to, to move upward to make sense in my world and makes per, I forced myself to, to get to a price that I, I think makes sense. And then I get there and it's just like, here we go. I've rehearsed it a hundred times or I've given it a hundred times and, and lately with demand going higher I've had to change it or not had to but I, ch- I thought it made sense to, cha- to, to change it more frequently than I had in the past and so I didn't get a chance to get comfortable with it as much as I had in the past so yes you're exactly right I, I still freak out. <laughs> so, so using you as the example right so even um, though we know what we do is valuable and helpful for customers even though we believe in what we sell and serve even though we solve real problems for customers um, uh, there is still a, a a pricing confidence issue for businesses, uh, or yeah. for or for if you're a one person business or a thousand person business. So what I would say is most pricing decisions, in the best of times or the worst of times. This is why I say this isn't so much changed as it is magnified. In the best of times or the worst of times, pricing is done from fear, not confidence. Uh, most times we are pricing not to lose. We're not yeah. pricing to win. And so what I would say is pricing is always a fear-based uh, enterprise for many, many of us. And yeah. so that hasn't changed. But when when things go from normal business cycle, normal business uh, flow, normal uh, business ten- tempo to what's been going on over the past 6, 12 to 18 months, depending on the industry, with the supply chain interruptions, the long lead times, the insane cost increases, the difficulty uh, procuring uh, freight and the the cost of energy, the cost of raw materials, the cost of supply, the cost of talent, the difficulty securing talent, everything that is going on that's making the market such a tumultuous and chaotic place. That normal level of fear and discomfort around price becomes panic. 
And so it's not that anything is new in pricing. It's just the magnitude has become kind of, kind of, you know, fierce. It's, it's really, it's gotten huge. Because the stakes are so high or because it's moving so fast? Yes and yes. Uh, I would also say, depending on what what industry uh, you're in, the cost increases are coming, the the hits are coming very, very fast. And so people are finding their profitability underwater. And, you know, just again, mentioning what you said, that because of demand, um, you know, you're having to raise them more often than you, you know, than you had in the past. You don't have time to get comfortable with it. You know, what we're seeing with, you know, all the audiences we're speaking to or clients we're talking to is they're having to raise their prices the second the third the fourth the fifth time in a year maybe more than that maybe monthly or more Mm -hmm. often than that and that is not something that um it isn't so much that we don't have the skill for it it's that we don't have the mindset for it right 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 yeah it's much more about the the head trash and what's between our ears and what's in our gut around that than it is you know true understanding of our value proposition or ability to have a you know present uh, you know, present to a customer about value. It's really more about the the fear and the and the underlying um, issues there. And so, when we've done that, the second, the third, the fifth, the eighth, the tenth time in a year, um, and we, it's like a, it's sort of a shock to our system to have to go have that amount of fear and panic and fear and panic and fear and panic. It's just a little bit of, it's like a little bit of trauma uh, for sales teams or for for sellers or for entrepreneurs who sell. Uh, I think. You know, if you look at the the brain science around this, when you operate from a fear state, the amygdala is in charge. You know, and the amygdala is really good at freezing, fleeing, or fighting. It's not really good at making rational, nuanced, profitable pricing decisions and negotiating from a place of calm and, and confidence. So when a customer says, Mark, geez, I didn't think your session rate was going to be that high. That sounds like kind of a lot of money. Or, you know, that that's actually probably a pretty reasonable price. But I got to tell you, our business is down 30% this year because of COVID. And that's just not in our budget. And isn't there anything you can do to help us out? Or, I don't know, 30 other things they might say to you that you've probably heard. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you and every other human on the planet starts to spin into a little bit of a story about that. And sometimes the customer walked in there thinking you were going to say a rate that was 25% high, and they're just trying to save money because they've got yeah, yeah. a whole group of employees counting on them and families counting on them and all kinds of things. But we spin out with fear. Well, so I love that this conversation has been almost entirely about the emotional side of this because my first introduction to pricing a long time ago was sort of like in the manufacturing and distribution space where it was like, how many, how many pennies can you put the markup on this screw or this nut? And, and it was very, very spreadsheet and, and, and driven from that perspective. And so I've never found personally a lot of use for that part of the science because somebody else has got to figure that out. But in the world I'm dealing with, which is really around like getting comfortable with complex sales which have very significant subjective pricing and services and things and and overall margin and right to profit from a business level perspective you know how much how much profit do we deserve to have can we talk about money in the company uh i i love that that's their same exact language as well how much do you think I didn't go anywhere with this, but I just kind of take a step back. How much do you think just the nature of money taboo, just just money taboo, period, how much does that play into business pricing? Enormously. And it's it's, it's a wonderful question. And in fact, we uh, spend a lot of time in our training programs and stuff talking about this because 
uh, over 60% of, of salespeople have, uh, according to an assessment we use, that's been, been used for over 2 million salespeople. So I just mentioned that because it's a huge body of people that have been assessed by mm-hmm. this independently validated assessment. Over 60% of salespeople are uncomfortable discussing money. Uh, and <laughs> which and is, if, it's funny. It sounds huge, but actually, if, if, uh, I'm kind of thinking that's it's as low by population and high by job people, description by people whose job it is to talk <laughs> exactly, about money. Exactly. Well, and you think about this, and and you know, you think about when do you start learning about talking about money, and it's from your earliest memories, right? You hear around the dinner table, you know, don't, you know, so-and-so's family lives in a big house or, well, that's, you know, or you just hear things like it's rude to talk about money. Money's the root of all evil. You hear something about the way rich people are or something about the way poor people are or, um, you know, don't ask that question or it's gauche or this or that. These, These ideas, every single person in the world has a money story, some kind of... Uh, thing that's woven into how they see the world that has to do with money and a relationship with with money that affects how comfortable they are having a conversation about it, and none of that is bad. None, but no, no one's person. And by that I mean from a from a selling and pricing perspective, your personal relationship, Mark Leary, my personal relationship, Casey Brown, uh, Joe Joe. Uh, uh, Schmo's personal relationship with with money, there's nothing wrong with it. the The reason it's important to be aware of it is it can be an obstacle for us to ask for what we are really worth in terms of the value that we create. And so, if you are uncomfortable having a money conversation, it's going to stop you short from asking for a high enough price. It's going to make you very susceptible to price objections. When someone says, "Geez, Mark, that seems like, gosh, you know, X, you know, for a session day, that's blah 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 per hour." Do you really mm-hmm. think you're worth that? Not, you know, the do you think you're worth that? Now that calls into question all, all of a sudden we got self-worth stuff coming <laughs> yeah. up. We got all kinds uh-huh. of like mindset things going on. Now, you brought up the, you know, what you see as the difference between um, you know, you are selling in a, in a you know, professional service but in a very real way it's you, it's your expertise, it's your knowledge, it's your time and compared and contrasted that with with manufacturing and distribution and, you know, bolts and nuts and but the, if if you do not discount for one second how much psychology and fear and mindset is going on with people that negotiate those kinds of sales as well because that same thing is going on uh everyone everywhere who has to communicate a price communicate value and sell from value that has any discretion over that price and the ability to discount it their own mindset and their own self-limiting beliefs their habits their underlying um, sociological and psychological programming is having an influence over what they uh, what they ask for and how quickly they will fall back in discount. So I, I, lo- I want to take one step back on that. I, I think that everything you said is totally true, but my mind immediately goes to there's more than one person in the organization. Several, in fact. <laughs> there's a, there's a Typically, yes. <laughs> vi- vi- who, who have significant influence on the, the, the chain of custody of this conversation, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so there is somebody who brings a philosophy to the organization, a visionary mm-hmm. entrepreneur who has 
their perspectives on money. They've got the person that reports to them. Their person reports to them, and somewhere there's a sales manager, head of sales, uh, and and then there's a salesperson. Now, maybe that's one person, all that I described, or maybe sure. that's five people. But uh, so speaking more to the, the organizations that have more than one person in that chain, maybe we'll say maybe two or three: a visionary, a head of sales, and a sales rep. Where where does that head trash and that psychology lay most? Uh, burden to get figured out. Can you uh, state that question? When you say lays most burden, meaning where does the leak happen most often? What do you mean by the question? So if we're going to solve it for a pricing problem, do we go talk to the sales reps? Do we talk to the visionary? Do we talk to the head of, head of sales and marketing? Where, where's our biggest mm. sort of lever point to uh, start making a difference in this, in this sort of head trash? So uh, if you do anything without the people who have conversations with customers, you're in big trouble. So you got to have this. You have to have the hearts and minds of the sales, the sales team, the sales okay. reps. However, uh, if you do not uh, do something holistic with the sales leadership and that can be sales managers or sales, you know, sales VP, sales director, it depends on how much hierarchy you have there, how big of a team you have. But I would say the sales organization holistically, um, which may be a rep and a manager or a couple reps and a manager, it could be a number of reps and managers and, and maybe a VP or director. Uh, your sales organization, uh, including the leadership, has to be a part of a change. And the reason is that... Uh, reinforcing coaching and holding accountable the frontline sellers and pricers of the organization to their behaviors to their actions to their uh, mindset and changing that over time is not uh, as easy as go tell them to do this go tell them to say this and and it's especially because the mindset is the biggest obstacle and now I'll explain in just a little bit more detail it's very common around challenges of selling and pricing that you know, a, a, an obvious way to fix this is something, uh, some kind of training, and let's let's do a, a workshop, or let's have a, a you know a speaker come in, or let's go to a seminar, and we hear good ideas, and light bulbs mm-hmm. go off, and we hear like, oh gosh, that you know we saw Casey Brown at this conference, that was good stuff, or we saw you know you know Bill you know Jingleheimer Schmidt, and it was great, you know we hear whatever we hear, and it sounds like good stuff, but then we go back to work, and we have two hundred seventy emails and twenty four voicemails, and you know, and then we go into the customer arena where we hear all these things about how we're too expensive and the next guy can do it cheaper and all those other things. And so um, mindset isn't a thing that you change when you have an awareness and it has to change with repetition over time. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're going to reach into the quiver and pull out an arrow and, and, and have that be a different arrow than we're used to. And for fit for folks that have been selling a certain way for years, even decades, if you want them to reach in and grab a different arrow you've got to reinforce that over time and when when you are talking about things like how you see money conversations that have been you know habits and beliefs people have held for 50 years it isn't going to be about teaching them what to say and what to do this is a problem with some of the you know ways that people approach changing behavior through you know kind of traditional training programs is say this do this and uh, I'll, just by way of find, you know, hopefully putting a nail in the coffin of this point I'm trying to make, and I might be beating a dead horse, uh, but I'll dig it up and tell one more thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we hear this a lot from sales leaders uh, as a real frustration point. They will 
they'll coach their 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 person, their their salesperson, and say, okay, you know, let's 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 role play this. Okay, you're going to go visit our you know our big customer today. You're going to make a presentation. You're going to, you know, pitch this thing, and you're going to tell them how much it costs, and it's going to go. Okay, great. And what are they going to say? And what are you going to say? And what if they say this? And there's a bunch of preparation, right? And and planning and coaching and role playing, and and then the person goes and makes the pitch, and then they come back to the manager. Afterwards, the manager says, "How's it? Go? How'd it go? Oh, terrible." What do you mean terrible? What happened? And they tell the story. What did you say? What they say? What? Well, when they said that, did you say this? No. But we practiced. I know. I just. And what happens? <laughs> and the managers get really frustrated because we. Well, we practiced this. And what happens is that the rep knows they're supposed to do or say this thing. They've been taught to do it. They've been given a process or a script or a this or a that. But when the moment comes, and they're supposed to do or say the thing, they won't do it. Or they can't do it. And it's because in that moment, the stuff between their ears, the, the, the head trash, you know, they feel pushy or salesy or weird or they're worried about what the customer's going to think or they feel like they're going to be annoying or they just like something else trips them up and they get that icky belly syndrome and they stop. And so this is why when you ask the question, is it the visionary? Is it the sales leader? Is it the rep? It's uh, if you don't, address it with the people that are having customer conversations you're in big trouble because those folks have the discretion to march around anything you do at the strategy level but if you don't have reinforcement at the leadership level to to be constantly working on the coaching and the reinforcing and the holding accountable then it's going to be very hard to change behavior over time and i i imagine given what what you know to be effective in organizations that run on eos with accountability uh, throughout the organization that, you know, hitting it at one level of the organization is, is typically not terribly effective for any behavior change. Well, one of the things that I'm taking away from our conversation is that pricing is not, because I got to admit, when I first started thinking of, oh, pricing expert, and I have heard of this before, I'm thinking of like, this is how we figure out the sheet. This is how we fill out the, the spreadsheet. what the math looks like. Yeah. 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 And so, but what I'm hearing is um, it's an ecosystem of mindset process, negotiation, a sheet, <laughs> like a starting point. But yeah. that's one of several pieces that have to be in play. That's right. And the, the only other thing that you, I would add to your list, so you're absolutely right. And you ever get uh, tired of your gig and want to get into the pricing game, you, you've got a huge <laughs> leg up on, on, on everyone else that's uh, applied so far. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally willing to consider your app. But uh, the only other thing I would add to your list that you didn't mention um, is also uh, the communication about pricing and defending mm. it and uh, communicating value and what the context you create about pricing. And so my totally made up statistic that I quote all the time, but I'm a consultant, so I'm allowed to make up statistics. It's, it's, uh, it's, per, it's permitted by the, uh, the Geneva Convention for, for, for consultants. <laughs> so um, we uh, 50% of getting pricing correct is what number? you put on the quote or the proposal or the or the invoice the other 50 percent is what you tell people about it and how you make them feel about it um and obviously those numbers are made up and and where the the split is between those is actually somewhat industry dependent because the more competitive and competitive and commoditized your industry is it skews more towards getting the number right and a little less around the communication and the and the more differentiated and specialized and unique your world is it's the other way but in either case, yeah, that yeah. context is really, really important. 
Um, I, I agree 100. percent In fact, I was thinking the number seemed a little low until you you brought me back. With there are commodity industries where pricing is really a, bit, a much bigger part of the formula, because I, having been in complex selling and services where and, and worked with hundreds of companies in that space, the, the tendency is to be undifferentiated. And so you're selling on relationship and talent and rapport, and it's very, very difficult to, to do that well. And so the only thing, the only common denominator in a commodity undifferentiated sale is price, even in a, an industry that has the potential to be highly differentiated. If you haven't done that work, um, I think that a, a complex sale that is undifferentiated could be 80 to 90% uh, flipped the other way, like if you, if you don't send the, uh, the right context. And so I, you know, I've mentioned this before, this abundance versus crisis thing that there's only uh, the the power to managing an, a crisis of abundance when there's too much stuff uh, is when you can't meet the demand, you can't hire enough people, you can't do the work fast enough, you can't do as much to meet the demand. The only real lever you got to pull is saying no in some way, and that is oftentimes saying no, not right now, or no, not at that price. And that's the kind of the pivot point here. The the tricky part of saying no though is understanding how its relationship to yes and, and why would you say yes and, and why are you doing this deal and why would we as a company want to do something with you uh, and, as opposed to somebody else who I definitely need to say no to entirely and what we discovered what I've discovered certainly is that when I say say no and say yes you have to know why and you know why who is our best customer what, what am I here to do? What am, what's my purpose on the planet as a leader and as an individual? Why, what's this company's reason for being? Who is our best customer and how do we delight them and how do we use our talent? And those questions don't answer quickly. And if you're trying to answer that in the moment, it's tough. You, you usually go back to like, well, all right, I can drop the price. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and that's where preparation uh, is a huge part of, of really effective uh, pricing execution, and I and I say preparation in a, in a few different ways. One is really thinking about the sort of questions you just brought up, but also preparing for the kind of objections someone might bring to you. So, what are the kinds of things that people might say when you tell them your price, and what are the most effective uh, responses and questions uh, that you can bring back uh, when they give you those objections? Uh, the more prepared we are for pricing conversations, the less fearful we feel, the less we, you know, that, that we run straight to that amygdala uh, state, that, that fear state. We can get the neocortex back in the game. I believe that we need to give pricing more time and attention in every business. Um, you know, I think that uh, there's a Navy SEAL saying I like a lot, uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Absolutely. And so yeah. when we're in a moment of, you know, we've just, we, you know, and I, I look, I love pricing conversations and I don't get stressed out giving people the price for our services. And yet I have to eat my own cooking every once in a while. It still happens for me too. And you get that feeling, right? Your stomach gets a little like, oh gosh, what are they going to think? And, and then you do that. And then, uh, you know, you can get a little, you know, a little fearful or a little nervous or a little this or a little that. And they say what they say. Take a couple deep breaths. Give yourself a chance to regulate your neurochemistry, 
or, you know, before your meeting, before you go in to have a conversation, a big, you know, I think it's unlikely for you, Mark, but maybe for some of your, your uh, listeners, they have these, you know, maybe big negotiations with, you know, Fortune 500 companies with procurement managers whose job it is to beat you up on price and to, you know, just tear you apart on these things. And it's, it's can be very aggressive, very complicated, uh, you know, bid and RFP uh, negotiation processes that are intensely stressful. So, you know, before you respond to that email or you pick up the phone and call that procurement guy back, take five minutes, get up, drink a glass of water, walk around the office, you know, regulate your neurochemistry, regulate your psychological state. There is a lot that your emotional and psychological state have to do with what's in your bank account when it comes to pricing. And if you are not, uh, if that sounds like I'm making that up, I'd like to to remind you of something I said earlier on in our conversation, that pricing's like poker. You know, that mm-hmm. that there's a lot of bluffing going on. Everybody's trying to hide the truth, right? Sellers are trying to hide how much they're, the little that they're willing to accept, and buyers are trying to hide how much they're willing to pay. And who's a better bluffer? In my 25 years of, of this uh, of this study, of this of this sport of pricing, the buyers are the better poker player. And and anybody who's, who's a student of the game of poker knows that the cards you're dealt are only part of the game. The mm. other part, another huge part is how you play the game. And so pricing is the same way. Having great products and services that are priced appropriately for value, that's part of the game. That's part of the success of earning a high price, but the other is how you play the game and how you can manage this. And I'm pointing to my mind right now for any listeners, how you manage your mindset is 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 a in your ability to regulate your emotions and not panic and not you know just pull the panic lever and discount from fear including pre-discounting including going yeah. in too low from the first right. has a huge amount to do with how much money you're earning as a business so power not panic especially now when things are moving fast mm-hmm. we talked about this but to, to re-emphasize the point part of what we're rapid change mm-hmm Massive amounts of uncertainty. Yeah, these these are working against us. This is we've been dealing with this for two and a half years in, in, in the COVID situation. Now it's better now, mm-hmm. I think. Certainly better for me. The first year was tough for me yeah. mentally to, to digest so much uncertainty and get used to it, and then and sort of discount how much stress I was under. Think I'm fine, and I wasn't fine on many days. Thinking <laughs> I was supposed to be fine, just because I had gotten used to a, a, a background noise of uncertainty that had taken thirty percent of my sort of emotional stability completely off the table. When I didn't have access to it, and it had been so long since I'd had access to it, I didn't even remember having it. So, so now it's not as bad, but it's still there, right? There's there, mm-hmm. there is uncertainty that we, especially if you're, you're buying, you're sourcing offshore, uh, and there's and there, you got major Major competitor, you're a small player against major industry competitors. The, ind- you know, the, the uncertainty is super high, so um, so you got less to work with in terms of comfort. And your competitors, the same thing. So you're at a level playing field, but just understanding where you're at. What is the checklist, and where do you start? How far back in the process? I mean, break this down to somewhere between three and seven steps. Seven step, three and seven steps to kind of show up. To, to be able to be in a position of, of power and not panic in the pricing conversation? Well, uh, it's a great question. So I, one thing that I, I wanted to uh, comment on the something that you said around the, the shift that we've been through and where people are experiencing 
you talked about like, I feel like I'm fine, but maybe I wasn't fine or I'm not fine. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of folks in, in selling and pricing conversations that have experienced a lot of change in the way the selling and pricing conversations have gone. And, and, and in other words, the way that you produce and secure business has changed. The way that you mm-hmm. need to... Like there are a lot of folks that the way that that happened is you used to go to a, a customer's site or you sit down and have a meeting and then all of a sudden you can't have meetings anymore. Or you can't go. They don't allow you on site or their their uh, facility is shut down or your facility is shut down. And so the mechanisms by which you can even sell in price, forget what the number should be. Again, we're away from is the number the right number? Like is the sheet the right sheet? This is again back to it isn't just getting this all right. It's the 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 fatigue and the the um, the impact of the change. Why I bring this up is I you mentioned before a lot of you know folks that have maybe sold on relationships, um, and that has really challenged the relationship seller these changes. And uh, and, and the, the the truth is, the very best. And this is back to that same assessment of the two million uh, salespeople. The very best and the very worst salespeople are not terribly different in terms of their ability to be a relationship seller. It's in other words, it's not a differentiator to be able to build relationships. It's table stakes. Mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. if you can't build relationships, you can't sell anything. So. That's not a differentiator in in selling. Now you've got to be able to do it, but it's not a differentiator. It's table stakes. Right. Yeah, so that then you're back to the only thing you can do is sell on price. And selling on price is not selling. It's taking orders. So if you want to be able to differentiate and communicate value, uh, what are those steps? Well, it's it's really about it's about preparation and planning. And it does not start when the customer says, what's your price? Or how could you charge me that much? It starts well in advance. Before you sit down with the customer, uh, what do you, and, and, I th- and I really recommend this be by customer, not here's my one size fits all value communication. Here's what I tell people, or here's what I charge people, but by customer, as I'm going to have a conversation with a customer, what is my pre-call plan? Okay. What, what okay. goals yeah, do I have? What goals do I have for this meeting? What do I hope to learn? What do I want to have happen as an outcome? If we're gonna, if I'm going to pitch something or propose something, uh, what is that going to look like? What questions am I going to ask? What questions do I think they're going to ask? What am I terrified they're going to bring up? Mm. This. Yeah. W- what am I going to be ready with if they do? Uh, what questions might they ask me and be ready with those answers? Putting some time, and I'm not talking about a six-hour preparation process. It could be 15 minutes per customer before you go have a conversation, before you hop on Zoom, before you uh, go visit them, before you pick up the phone. A 15-minute pre-call planning session where you put a little time into that will put you in such a better position to walk in and be prepared. That's one strong recommendation I have for people around better pricing execution. That's again, this isn't necessarily new inf- new recommendation, but I think in the times of today, as you described the climate we're operating in, it's even more important because of the level of chaos that people are operating in, and they're not taking enough time. And because costs are higher, margins are thinner, we can afford a mistake even less. So one is pre-call plan. Number two is uh, another preparation step, which is uh, grab someone, anyone, do a little role mm. play. 
do a little discussion. And by the way, role play, this is a word that 98% of human beings are allergic to. Don't mm-hmm. find, don't call it a role play, call it a pre-brief. Rebrand it, whatever it takes. Practice, practice. practice. Yeah. <laughs> whatever it takes, grab another human being and say, pretend you're uh, Sandra from ABC Plate Company, and and I got to talk to you about this, and I'm gonna and just practice it, say the words out loud, because writing it the way we write is not the way we talk. So pr- mm. some preparation. Yeah. This will be another thing. Both of these two steps, these first two steps of pre-call planning and, and preparation of practice will allow you to stay in the moment when you're with Sandra at ABC Plate Company. And when you're in the moment, you're not jumping ahead. You're not jumping back. You're not worrying. You're able to listen presently to Sandra and what business challenges she's having. She's having. And you're able to ask really thoughtful, good questions you're able to respond. You're not fearful. You're not operating from a fear state. You're able to be really present and you're able to sell more effectively and you're able to uh, defend and communicate pricing more effectively. So the, that, that emotional presence, that emotional calm in the meetings is an outcome of the preparation, but it's the third step of okay. that higher okay. price. So that's the, the three. Those, so... That's enough. That's enough for now. If you okay. did, honestly, there's about a million things you can do to get better at price. <laughs> but if it, the, the 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 place that people focus a lot is let's make sure we got a good value proposition. Let's spend the time on the worksheets. Let's do the math stuff. All those things are great. But where we fall short is any preparation and making sure okay. that we're in the moment. That so sense. that's where I would encourage people to spend more time and energy. So I believe in that 100%. I assume that sits on the foundation of we've already done the work, particularly in the U.S. language. We know what our three uniques are. We know who our target audience is, our target market, our best customer. We know what they look like. And we're not walking in to a meeting with somebody who we already know really shouldn't buy our stuff because yeah. they're too big, too small, too, too whatever. Sure. And so I mean, how, if it's often, a, how often has that step been missed? And you, when you're in this, and we're going to figure out pricing. And you say, well, who's your best customer? And they're like, everybody. <laughs> we can do it all. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's a great question. And yeah, I was presuming that we're maybe further down that qualification path. If this is a more of a discovery meeting, um, I still think the preparation, uh, the same steps apply because we still want to know what's our goal for the meeting. What do yeah. we want to ask? What do we need to know? What am I terrified they're going to ask me or bring up? What is, you know, what are what, all the same steps? And then we can rehearse and practice it. And then we go in and we're, we're very disciplined and we're very calm. Um, th- all the same steps apply, even if we know virtually nothing. If this is the very first time I'm ever speaking to someone and I might find out in the first five or 10 minutes, it's really not going to be a good fit. But if I'm not prepared with the, the questions and if I'm not prepared with the goals to understand that, then it's very easy to get what we call happy ears. And that means mm-hmm. like, I'm listening for everybody's a good fit for me. I'm listening for everybody's a good client for me. And it stops us short of asking yeah. enough really discerning questions to uncover if maybe this isn't going to be a good fit. Or maybe they don't have budget. Or maybe they really, uh, they don't line up with our proven process and we're not going to, we're, you know, we're going to find out six months from now that this is a disaster. And I could have found that out in the first 10 minutes if I'd have been able to be prepared uh, and practiced and stayed emotionally disciplined enough to really uncover the real issues. The other, the other thing is it's not just about 
disqualifying, which is kind of what we're talking about now. It's also sometimes about uncovering a whole host of other needs they have that can open up a ton of sales opportunity sometimes because they come to you and say, hey, I have this one little problem. Can you fix that for me? And you say, sure, let's talk about it. And then you find out they also have problems in a whole bunch of other areas that they didn't bring to you. But if you're listening presently and you're and you're ready with the right kind of questions to uncover issues, then you can really uh, you can sell more faster at higher prices. Yeah, my, I find the reason I kind of ask that question is that, especially now, um, we'll say any typical business is doing well to close two out of three deals. Somewhere wasn't paying attention when it went to three out of three for three, four, six quarters. Mm. And then now they're going into a meeting with the mindset of, you know, two out of three, we're just going to go in and do a good needs analysis and uh, natural attrition. I'm going to lose some, and I don't know why. Because a lot of times the customer is the one that helps you rescue from yourself. That actually happens. If you're not that great at understanding what you're good at, sometimes they know. And they'll say no, and you'll be like, oh, that jerk, they should have signed with us. And they actually knew better than you did. Now we're, we're, we're closing three out of three because the market's what it is, and really we can only afford to close one out of three. So, so then we're in this two out of three, three out of three situation, and we're in, a, we're in a conversation with somebody who's really not a right fit, and it really isn't reasonable that they pay more for you, but you're like, we should close this, right? <laughs> we have to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute. If, if you know, who is the person who really gets the high price value? Yeah. And shouldn't I make sure I have time to speak with those people who really are willing to pay, don't see a problem with the rate I'm to, I want and need to charge, and those people who don't fit that, maybe I can direct them someplace that's more appropriate for them. And I can get back to a, a, an appropriate deal flow at a margin that makes sense instead of kind of being of the slightly scarce mentality, the scarcity mentality of the past, so that two out of three kind of works, and I have to think real hard, and we just did that. But now you have to think really hard, and it's, and it's not about closing more, it's about really when we move this fast if if because i had this happen i actually had it happen where it was like i was just as afraid as the client as afraid that the client was going to say yes as they were going to say no because i just had barely any time left in the schedule and so there are lots of businesses that are kind of like that they're they're they're, they know where they're at i've got like i got several businesses who are just like they're on a big long wait list and their people are kind of at their edge and they're trying they can't hire as people as fast as they can get on new clients and so it's really important with, for them that they that they bring on clients who understand that the, the value is what it is and they don't mind waiting and they don't mind paying more because they're like yeah we know it's you we, we're glad to be here and i don't mind waiting and paying more is why i'm i found you and not the people across the street and so it kind of takes the pressure off the relationship to say like oh yeah okay cool i can be me and i can tell you this is this is our level of standard this is our level of excellence this is our process this is our product this is what you want yes that's what i want this is exactly what i need and so it can take some of the emotional friction out of it by by being really well aligned up front well, absolutely. I think uh, there is never a time to not be discerning and not be very uh, rigorous in your qualification standard, whether your capacity tight or not. I think uh, it is a is a mistake for businesses to fill up their capacity with uh, bad fits just because they have excess capacity. There's a million reasons not to do that, but especially in a time like now, uh, that that strong strong alignment with those for whom you are a perfect qualification fit is is essential. One of the things that I think is a is an exclamation point on the on the the concept you're bringing up here is that there's some businesses that are that are not just 
humming along at their their in their habit of two out of three is pretty good or one out of three or whatever they were at and 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 now all of a sudden they're closing more and they're asking themselves if that's appropriate i've seen even worse and i don't know if you've you've run across this in any of your um travels recently but there are a number of businesses that were uh in industries that were substantially hit by by covid shutdowns and so forth and so uh there was a, a a bit of a shell shock among those in the sales organization around almost like a new mindset of like oh my gosh the sky's falling the pie's mm-hmm. shrinking and all of a sudden they and all their competitors are, are grabbing for scraps in a shrinking pie and that uh, created a little bit of a of a panicky desperation mindset among the sales teams and so there's a bit of um any business is good business kind of a feeling and yeah. when you get that kind of and look i started a company uh as a single mom with two kids in the middle of the last recession so i can certainly understand how uh difficult it is and and if you're the owner of a business this is true but it's true for lots of other folks inside businesses to walk away from business it's very hard to do and if you're a mm-hmm. if you're a sales uh leader or a salesperson what you what you love to do what you're built for is is closing and selling business so i get that it's hard to walk away from but what what seems to have happened is that that people like had a bit of an experience where we lost a lot of a lot of business and now there's this like this this like we're in the bunker and we're afraid and now the business is coming back all of a sudden we've got demand again uh but we're still operating in that in that fear state like oh i gotta grab for anything i gotta take any deal and the reality is that the organizations are suffering from this massive indigestion of all this volume because we can't tire well uh or fast enough we can't get materials fast enough we can't um uh manage uh the growth that is coming when all the all the customers that we propose to say yes to us right yeah i mean i actually have to admit i had that experience i mean coming out of a year where my calendar got pretty open yeah you know, and, and and i had great relationships with great clients but there was a lot of obstacle to doing business for, uh, and, it, and it created some space and so it definitely like i said the uncertainty aspect and having that open calendar space made me feel a sense of scarcity that yeah. i wasn't even really that aware of until it, it, everything came back with a, an aggressive vengeance and mm-hmm. suddenly it was like uh, it was whiplash yeah. it was absolute whiplash it yeah. was like there, I, I was not ready to shift gears into an absolute abundance mindset and mm-hmm. it took a while to be there to kind of get comfortable to say okay this 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 is the new norm again so right. you gotta gotta adjust to that and for businesses that have 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 employees or that have machines to fire up or furnaces to put into commission or whatever i mean some of the the ability to make changes to that to that uh, capacity or crews to keep busy you know on a construction site or whatever i mean there there are some organizations where that that whiplash is causing huge havoc for them so i'm i'm very um sensitive and compassionate to the reality of those emotions uh and and I believe that the the emotional reality of that should not stop us from examining how we can get paid well for our excellence. Well, right. And so uh, one of the disciplines in EOS is um, 
prediction. It's one of the five leadership abilities that we teach to make sure that uh, we're consistently breaking through those ceilings that, that tend to find us if we don't find them first. Uh, prediction is this idea of long-term prediction, which is goal-setting, long-term stuff, 90 days and beyond. You could, these are the, in the EOS terminology, our rocks, our one-year plan, our three-year picture, and kind of all the why are we going to some place that matters and where is that place that, some, that matters. Long-term prediction is good. Short-term prediction is sort of the path to get there, the 20-mile march every single week. And I had taught that very consistently for many years around the idea of like if you're underperforming, if you need to make 20 miles and you're made 15, you're going to have to account for that. That's You should measure that. Your scorecard, your level 10 meeting, those are, those are how you predict that. What I found over the last two years is if you got 20 miles on the, on the plan and you're knocking out 40 every single week, that sounds good. But it may not be, mm-hmm. and, and and really quickly figured out that like oh great we're we're targeting twenty loans a week but we're doing forty that's a, then well who's going to process those mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we don't have a way to process forty loans a week we mm-hmm. got to that that prediction is there's a consequence there yeah. and maybe that's a pricing conversation maybe that's a capacity of timing and expectation setting thing but it's a real consequence we're going to do twice the amount of surgeries we did last month well no we've only got five surgeries. <laughs> Right. operating rooms and three doctors right. so we, we cannot double capacity on that so right. we have to have to make sure we're predicting for that and that very much very often affects price and that's part of the rationale of saying like okay if we're going to say yes it had better be worth it and that's so right. we, we got to think about think that through i i think you're 100 percent right and i'm also continually fascinated uh at how little uh and, and again, this is a somewhat industry dependent, but how little price is an effective uh, governor of capacity? And by that, I mean people assume mm-hmm. that the way that they're going to manage their capacity is they're just going to raise prices. And I, I, uh, I have warned people all the time. Don't. Uh, I think you should raise your price because you're worth it and you can. But don't be shocked when you don't lose the customers you think you will. Uh, Businesses notoriously overestimate their elasticity, uh, and and it's because they 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 believe the lie of the econ textbook with the demand curve, uh, where um, uh, we you know we immediately start losing business when we raise price, and it's it's just that's a macroeconomic total yeah. commodity concept that doesn't apply in a microeconomic environment where there's any differentiation at all between players, and and so. People do that. They change their price. They don't lose volume or they don't lose much or they don't lose, you know, remotely as much as they thought. And then they're somehow disappointed because they still have a, 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 a indigestion issue around capacity. I say, well, at least you're making more profit now. That's that's exactly right. That's true. I, I, I've definitely experienced that. Uh, it is it, it is. That's worth repeating, I think. It is, not, it is not a governor of demand on the micro level, on the individual level. It is a governor of profit. And so when you predict, you have to say, okay, inst- we're, we're going to have more money to work with. What are we going to do next? And so it's not, it doesn't just immediately solve it right in the moment. So I, I think that's, that's part of the prediction conversation. Okay, great. So we've, 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 we've said yes a couple more times. We got paid a little bit more. Now what? And because uh, we know, I think this is a, a stoic thing. I might have been, I don't know, one of the, I don't know who this was. I might have, I think it was 
Mark Manson, I think, is his book, um, and he talks about you don't solve problems; you just upgrade the problem a little bit to a problem you hopefully like a little better than the last one. And so you you don't actually solve the problem; you do have a new problem, and that is okay. I now have some money; I've got to figure out how to deploy to manage <laughs> this, the, the, the supply All issue. All this, right? When I was in uh, Six Sigma as a black belt at GE, one of the rotations I did was in supply chain, and I was uh, I did forecasting for. Uh, uh, for light bulbs and and uh, we we um, were bringing some over from from Asia from some of our factories in Asia uh, on on uh, by um, sea freight and so uh, capa- prediction there was very important and it was it wasn't like hey let's sell more this is great it was like no we can't suddenly magically have more light bulbs on the boat like the mom- the number we have mm-hmm. coming over is the number we come over so this kind of reminds me of what you're saying which is accuracy is more important than maximizing right and so ideally we'd love to sell more we'd love to do more we'd love to move faster like as a as entrepreneurs and as visionaries it's it's uh it's very exciting to us it's very sexy to us to do more and faster uh but there is a cost and so sometimes the accuracy of prediction rather than maximizing the number or or some some happy medium between the two uh, is is something that we've got to we've got to think about. Uh, the answer can be charge more, but uh, I would uh, I would caution uh, audience members to think that it may not solve your your uh, capacity problems as much as you think. That doesn't mean my advice is don't raise prices. My advice is raise prices, raise them faster, raise them more than you think. But it's probably not going to cost you as many customers as you hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or yeah, or, yeah, as you hope. That's, that's exactly right. Well, we've covered a lot. I, I could talk more, and I got more questions, uh, but I just want to make sure uh, you know, we, we don't uh, go too long with your time and, and, and all that. What, what do we miss? What, what's coming to mind right now? Oh, well... I uh, I think we, we covered a lot of things. I, I you know I I think we got to the root of it, which is that you know you can do a lot of analysis on your cost and your margins and your strategy and your policy and your rules, uh, and a lot of businesses spend time on that. And I think there's lots of good reasons to do that. You know what your incentives look like, all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think the the percentage of the time on this this conversation we spent talking about emotions and fears and mindset. Um, really resonates with what I know to be the the biggest reason that the businesses are leaking profit with pricing, which is which is fear versus confidence and um, concern, worry, a phantom threat that a customer is going to walk away. Uh, and I um, mm-hmm. I've got a lot of uh, empirical data backing that up. So my my ask, my uh, my advice, what I would implore people listening to this uh, would just be to uh, to push yourself. Right up until you're just shy of terrified, <laughs> uh, yeah. and this is for you too, Mark. You can you can yeah. take this advice for your business. Whatever is terrifying number, back it off just a smidge and charge that because uh, the the market is right for that. Uh, every industry, every sector. Um, there is uh, there is a numbness a little bit right now for pricing, and people don't like it. Nobody wants to pay more for anything. Nobody's happy to get a price increase, but there's a little bit of numbness. There's a wave, and I would recommend that businesses should be on the wave. Don't be behind it. Yeah, I don't want to open up the whole can of worms there, but inflation, right? That's a thing. <laughs> so you're in it right we're in it like we're in the water we're in the surf like if if you're like complaining about inflation and not raising your prices 
that's not smart, right? <laughs> yeah. What's funny to me about what you just said is that people are complaining about all their cost increases and then acting like they can't pass it along to a customer. But, like, your customer, it, it, it beggars uh, belief or it sort of challenges my my. Oh, I just, I can't understand how people, it's like a strange paradox that I struggle with. Like, how do you feel like you have no power as a customer when you get all these cost increases, but you also have no power as a seller when you want to push them along? It can't, they can't both be true. So you've got to um, examine your own beliefs about your power and and discover your your true pricing power. And I would would ask that people consider that, um, although, and and, and it's all different right the the type of pricing conversations and the customers that you're speaking to mark very different than some of your clients pricing conversations with some of their customers especially if they've got really big you know corporate accounts or something like that but what i would advise even in those situations is if you solve a real problem for your customers if you if you have uh, products and services uh that are excellent and you sell and serve them with excellence if you if you believe in what you sell and you wrap excellence around it, and if you clean up a mess when you make it with some integrity, then you are in a position right now to go ask for the highest price you can for value. You have a, you are in a position right now to go ask for more, um, and you have the right and and an opportunity to uh, to do that and and to to, to abdicate that out of fear yeah. is selling yourself short and robbing your organization of resources. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's great. It was great what you just said. Uh, and, it, and it started with what I picked up was uh, when nature, the world, the universe, life kind of gives us these things we don't want. Oh, these costs. Oh, it, it actually reminds us that we actually have the power. We don't want that. <laughs> we don't want the power because it's, it's uncomfortable for us. We have to have these conversations, but we have the power. Okay, let's go back to the customers and we have all the power in the world. Dang it. That's frustrating. But that's real. Yeah. And I know it's not the most fun conversation, except for me, for me, but for most people it's not. (laughs) And I acknowledge that, but it's, it's a very important one and get to it. Get busy people. So is that your passionate plea to entrepreneurs right now? If if not, feel free to pivot to something else. No, yeah, that's it. Raise them, raise them more, raise them again, raise them faster. If you did it, do it again, uh, because you're worth it and you deserve to be paid for your excellence. All my clients are really upset hearing you say that. <laughs> they'll, they'll grumble, 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 and then they'll stay. You know why? Because you're worth it. <laughs> well, luckily, they get a grandfather for two years for me. So the existing clients are like, you go charge more to those new people. <laughs> so, well, this has been great. So um, I'm really grateful for all of what you shared and the passionate plea. If someone wants to continue the conversation, learn more, hear about uh, more of on the subject, how do they find you? How do they follow you? Sure. So our, our uh, website is the best way to find us. Uh, we're at uh, boostprofits.com. And uh, from there, you can find uh, our ability to access and subscribe to our blog or find uh, how to connect up with us on LinkedIn from there. And uh, if anybody wants to, to email me, you can email me at kccasey at boostprofits.com. Awesome. And so people can also, who are EOS users and, and, and can looking at it, uh, either in, invest, investigating EOS or working with an implementer or familiar with just the conference in general, you'll be speaking at the EOS conference That's again. Right. Yes, yeah, so this right. is your second time, right? So This is my re- fifth out of six. What? Okay, wow. Well, okay, so 
I'm not paying attention. Uh, five out of six. Awesome. That's exciting. So I'm looking forward to that. It's always a great conference and uh, super great feedback on, on your session. So anybody who's going should check yourself out. Um, that's our time. That's it for today. Um, if you thought this was valuable, please get in the hands of uh, anybody who else you think might find it valuable. Uh, if, you th- uh, if you have feedback for us, we'd love the feedback. If you thought it was terrible, well, that feedback is fine too. Any feedback you can give us, we'd love to get. Uh, share it, uh, like, subscribe, all the kind of things that go with that. And uh, we, we love all that feedback, like I said. We will see you next time on You're Doing It Wrong with me, Mark Henderson Leary. This is You're Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson Leary. For more episodes and to subscribe, go to leary.cc.